Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 236. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today I'm back with another returning champion, a real professor, not just a jiu-jitsu professor, Valerie Valhalla Worthington. Val, how's it going? <laughs> it's it's going great, thanks. <laughs> I, I'm just that introduction was lovely. Thank you. <laughs> I refrained from calling you Dr. Valerie Worthington this time, although I think in a previous episode we did say we were going to embellish your title a little bit more every time you came on. That sounds good. I forgot to give some thought to how I wanted to be embellished, but you know, I would love to I would love to be a chef. I would love to be, I don't know, like a race car driver. There are just many things that I would love to do. So I, you know, I'll have to give it some thought for next time. Fake it till you make it. That's right. How do you think I got the black belt in jujitsu? <laughs> well, hey, that's actually maybe as good a, an indication as any. I mean, of course, you've been on the podcast before, but it's been a while. You're an OG in the jujitsu sports, but maybe for those who, who are too young to, to know what happened back in the day, why don't you tell everyone about who you are? Sure. So I am a New Jersey native. I actually did discover Brazilian jiu-jitsu when I was in graduate school on my way to becoming the professor that you mentioned. And I competed some, had sort of a not too illustrious competition career, but it helped me really learn more about jiu-jitsu. And jiu-jitsu itself has helped me live the kind of life that I want to because I've been able to use it as a tool for improvement in my life. And it's just so fun that when other aspects of my life are not as fun or not as satisfying, I kind of can't ignore them. And I guess maybe the most notable thing about me is that in 2006, I decided to use jujitsu as a tool in the way I mentioned to really kind of repurpose my life. So I was unhappy in my job. I was unhappy in where I was living. So I quit my job, sold my home, bought a car and drove around the country training jujitsu. And this was in 2006. And since then, I sort of view my life as before that trip and after that trip and have been able to, you know, really kind of craft the kind of life that that makes me happy. And jujitsu is a big part of it. Well, that's something that I always like to explore here on the podcast. I mean, if you ask me to define jujitsu in one sentence, I think I would have to say that it's a tool for personal growth. 
in the past, I might have described it as, you know, some fancy thing about how using alignment and leverage to break limbs and choke people unconscious. But really, I think that the actual combat piece of things is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what makes jiu-jitsu useful. The majority of people who train will never actually use jiu-jitsu in a real fight. They're going to get a series of other benefits out of it that they probably didn't expect. So I think that's interesting. Your story specifically, I know that you wrote a book about this and about this journey, but you're a great example of someone who used jiu-jitsu to kind of reassess their life and change things significantly. That's actually kind of related to the topic I wanted to discuss with you today, which is very much related, basically a way that you can use jujitsu as a lens through which to improve your life. And that is specifically talking about empathy and building empathetic relationships. But maybe before we get started and launch into that, anything you want to expand on just about your story, specifically on that topic of, of empathy, if there's any lessons that jujitsu has taught you about this very, very important mindset, I'd love to explore. Yeah. And I, I love your point about how most of us are not going to need to use jujitsu in a combat sort of sense. And, and so how can we use it in ways other than that, that are going to help us self-actualize? And one of the things that comes to mind for me is as part of the adventure that, that I had the opportunity to do and that I, that I wrote a book about, as you mentioned, one of the elements of that was that I maintained blog. So back in the day when everybody had blogs and what I found was that when I made myself the most vulnerable, when I was having difficulties or didn't know what the hell I was doing with my life or why certain things were happening. And when I shared those very sort of honestly and vulnerably, I got so much empathy in return. So the point being that when I was authentic and when I was truly being myself and fearing about the kinds of reactions that I would get to that authenticity or that honesty, as honest as I was able to make myself, the reactions that I got were uniformly supportive and loving. And I think that some of that has to do with the fact that if you make yourself vulnerable, then it makes it safe for other people to do the same. Yeah, yeah. And this, of course, becomes especially important as you climb the coaching ladder, go beyond being a white or a blue belt to the point where you're one of the senior people on the mats and your focus shifts a bit to giving back to the next generation and helping the people around you. At that point, it becomes especially important to have these kind of soft skills. And they're things that I think most gyms, maybe almost all gyms, don't teach. I recently did a series on our premium service with Kabir Bath about his coaching methods. And the main thing that he talked about when it came to how he builds coaches is he teaches them to be empathetic and to understand the human side of things. He really doesn't spend a lot of time teaching them about how to, you know, drill and, and explain the perfect arm bar. It's more about how to connect with your students and make sure that you have that solid relationship so that you can help them when they need it. And I think that's probably quite different from the way that a lot of people view jujitsu, where they think of it as just this purely technical thing. And if you're good enough at doing the techniques, then you must be good enough at teaching them as well, which I just don't think is true. I agree with you. And my background is in educational psychology. So I've spent a lot of time studying, learning and teaching. And because all of us go through some form of formal education, I think a lot of us think that we know how education should happen, whether it's an academic institution or, or in a jujitsu academy. And I think that we do that sort of at our peril because there are theories and there are models that can help us 
in terms of how we can best reach our students. And as you mentioned, one of the most important indicators or factors in the success of a student can definitely be the instructor. And one of the things that I often say is, you know, I can learn good technique from anybody, but I really want to be taught by people who I can respect and who I feel hear me and understand me and and care about my development as an athlete and, and as a person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So where does this start then? How do you apply empathy as a tool within your jujitsu? Now, we talked about from a coaching standpoint that it becomes important, but what about when you start off when you're a white belt or a blue belt? If you're like most people at that level, you're probably so focused on just trying to figure out what on earth is going on that you're not putting a lot of thought into the mindset of your training partners and how you can empathize with or assist them. But I'm wondering if you've got any thoughts on how a white belt, blue belt, or just someone else who's generally early on in their journey could benefit from this practice in their training. How a white belt or a blue belt could benefit from empathy? Yeah, from from applying it, right? Is that something that someone that early on in their journey should be thinking about? You know, when you're a white belt, you roll into class. It's the maybe the first time you've ever been there, or maybe you're within your first month or two. Are there any empathetic practices that you should be thinking about when it comes to your relations with the other people in your gym or perhaps even your instructor? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I wonder if for brand new people, if maybe they need to be the targets of empathy, meaning that maybe it's blue belts who can see that a brand new or even a you know a more experienced white belt can see when brand new white belts are coming in and just they've got that deer in the headlights look and they and they don't know where to stand. They don't know how to tie their belt. They don't know how to do these very, very fundamental things. And at that point, their cognitive load might be kind of taken up with with those kinds of things. But I think it makes a lot of sense to try to model and to try to encourage empathy in even students who have just a little bit of experience. And speaking for myself, one of the ways that I try to do that is to show empathy to other students. So if I'm teaching, then make sure that that the students know that I that I'm happy that they're there. And and so in answer to your question, yes, I think there is definitely something to be gained by expressing empathy to others when you're new. And I think that the way to get there is to model it and to expect it and to just kind of enact it as part of a, a jujitsu community. Let me ask you this question on the topic of beginners. The way that a lot of gyms deal with beginners is they just throw them into the snake pit, right? They just put them in there and they let a bunch of the other people just beat them up. And the idea is that the best way to learn is by doing. And if you put people in that environment, they're going to see firsthand how effective this martial art is and they're going to fall in love with it, right? But I would say that that approach of just taking new people and just throwing them into the deep end of the pool is not a particularly empathetic approach, right? And now, of course, people who do this will say, well, this is all about, you know, the strong breeding the strong and iron sharpening iron and something about boats and storms and all of that stuff. <laughs> and, you know, you need growth from discomfort, all of that. And people will say that you need to be doing all of this if you want to toughen up your students. And, you know, to some extent, of course, that's true. We do get into the sport because we want people to be more confident and more resilient. But I also think there's a time for that. You know, when someone walks in your door, if you just immediately just throw them into the deep end, I think you run the risk of a lot of people having a negative first experience and just trailing off. 
And yes, you may retain one out of every 10 of those students, and they may go on to be great jujitsu grapplers, but you wind up losing the vast majority of your students. And I've always found this to be an interesting onboarding approach that we use in the sport. I would want to get your feedback on that. And if you think the way that we introduce people to this grappling art could be improved. It's a really good question. And for me, it raises the question of what is the ultimate goal? Is the ultimate goal to weed out the quote unquote weak? Or is it to create an environment where everybody can learn? And I think your perspective on that is going to dictate the kind of onboarding that you do. Because I agree with you. I, you know, I remember back in the day, just like when I was quote unquote onboarded, I just kept showing up because I was weird enough that I liked the sport, even though I was usually the only woman in the room, you know, one of the smaller people. But I think that there are a lot of people who could truly benefit from jujitsu who are not going to just continue to show up, as you mentioned. So the question that I would ask of any instructor is, is your goal to be able to say, yeah, you know, only two out of every 10 people who come to my gym make it past the first week and we're really, really tough? Or is your goal to help everybody become as tough as it's possible for them to become those people who walk through your door? Yeah, that's a really, really important insight. I think a lot of gym owners are maybe subject to a bit of survivorship bias because they look around their room and they see that they have produced a handful of really, really good grapplers and they think, hey, my approach must be working. But I think that there is that survivorship bias at play where you're kind of looking at the people who survived. You're not looking at the 90% of customers that you drove off who could one day have become those incredible grapplers, but they just had such a negative onboarding experience that they walked away. And that is, it is something that in jujitsu, is a little bit unique. Basically, we try to just throw people into the fire on day one. I certainly can't imagine a company doing this with their employees, <laughs> you know, saying well, we right. want to make sure that we only hire the best and the brightest. So we're going to make our employees as miserable as possible in the first month to see who stays around, right? It just seems like an odd and uh, inefficient approach. And like you said, it creates this filter where you're basically now catering to people who have already mentally made up that decision that they're going to do this no matter what. There's a lot of people who might be on the fence and they just have a really negative first experience and they bounce and you never hear from them again. And that person could have gone on to become a great instructor or world champion one day if they'd really been convinced that jujitsu was right for them. But just due to circumstances, they didn't have that experience. I agreed 100%. And this gets back to the topic at hand, because imagine if you are a 100-pound woman and you were attacked and your reason for coming to jiu-jitsu is to learn how to defend yourself and to take back your sense of, of autonomy and empowerment. It may be the scariest thing in the world for you to even walk through the door and to encounter a mostly male clientele whose purpose in going to class is to learn ways to dismantle your defenses. And that woman might be the toughest mofo around because she overcame those fears. But if your sense of what is tough is only aligned with what you have, you yourself have experienced as toughness, then you might miss out on the opportunity to really understand a sense of toughness from someone else's perspective and be able to bring that kind of dynamic into your gym. And what a missed opportunity, as you were saying. 
Yeah, I think it was actually you who talked about this on a prior appearance, just how many gyms, they kind of build their gym through the perspective of the instructor and what they like and what they want to see. And by doing this, they send subtle signals to other people that maybe this gym is just not a good fit for them. And that represents a lack of empathy right there. The common example, and again, I think it was you who brought it up last time you were on, you talked about how many gyms, they just don't even have a women's changing room. Yeah. Well, if that's the case, then you're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If a, if a woman walks into a gym wanting to learn self-defense and there's no women's changing room and there's no women training there, you're sending a signal whether you intend to or not. And that really just comes down to you kind of looked at this gym most likely through your own perspective and you fail to understand that by creating this narrow lens of what jiu-jitsu looks like, other people are going to look at this and just immediately assess it and say, well, clearly this isn't for me. Right. Absolutely. So two things. First of all, I must be an OG because I'm starting to repeat my stories. So <laughs> maybe not starting. Maybe I've been repeating my stories the whole time. And the other point that I was going to make is that I think I think there are a lot of gym owners who would like to be welcoming, would like to understand what students need who maybe didn't have the same experiences they did or who maybe don't aren't in the same demographic. But sometimes we don't know what we don't know. Sometimes we don't know the questions to ask. And so that's why having these kinds of conversations, I think, is super important because, you know, whether it's trying to get more women in your gym or trying to get more kids or trying to get more, you know, more of those people who went to that job and that you were describing hypothetically and were like, wow, this place stinks. I'm going to go train jujitsu. Regardless of the kinds of people that you're trying to attract or the kind of gym that you're trying to create that kind of awareness that, you know what, my perspective is is but one, and there are other perspectives to learn from. Maybe I don't agree with everybody's perspective, but in understanding or in trying to understand other people's perspective, first of all, I'm being more expansive. And second of all, I actually then have a reference point for understanding the rationale for my perspective. Right, right, right. Now, you know, it's funny, I've got a, a six-year-old kid and she is very much into the golden rule right now. I keep telling her about the golden rule, you know, the do unto others rule. And she's, uh, I'm trying to convince her to look at life through that lens of understanding how other people are going to perceive something and how you would feel if something was done to you. Obviously really important at that age because you're just kind of starting to learn that, hey, you're, the world doesn't revolve around you. There's other people out there who have their own wants and desires and they're not going to like you if unless you take that into account. And I think most people would agree that, you know, if you're going to apply one mental model in your life, the golden rule will probably have the most benefit across the board to just your general quality of life. The challenge is, though, it gets hard to do that when you get really experienced. You know, something you had mentioned earlier is that when you get up the chain and you're super experienced, it becomes difficult for you to remember what it was like to be a, a white belt and to remember what that experience was like. Also, you know, that experience may have changed. You know, I was a white belt in 2008. I am not sure what it's like now to be a white belt. I'm sure it's dramatically different. So it's not even as simple as just trying to remember what happened to you. Things can change over time and someone else's experience might be different. So if you are that ranking brown or black belt in the gym, how do you become empathetic with those people who are so far removed from you in terms of experience? Like, how do you get into the head of that day one white belt so that you can understand what they're going through? 
Yeah. One of the things that comes to mind is you talked about how being a white belt might be different now from the way it was when you were a white belt. I think another thing that may be shifting is the way that we enculturate white belts. So again, like we were talking about back in the day, it was sort of like white belts were seen and not heard. And they were, you know, I would train with people who would make jokes like, oh, that's so cute. They think they're people, (laughs) you know, as opposed to just white belts. But I think what I have seen more of nowadays is that precisely for the reasons that that you're talking about, that that people do want to, instructors do want to kind of understand what their students need. There is more communication going on and there's more of a sense of, listen, I know something about jujitsu, but you know what you need. So let's let's put those two things together and you can tell me if encouraging you to train another round is pushing you or if it's too much. And you mentioned the golden rule. And I actually was sitting here doing a little Google search while we were talking because I thought I had heard of something called the platinum rule, which it turns out I did, at least Google has has indicated that Tony Alessandro wrote a book called the platinum rule. And the platinum rule is treat others the way they want to be treated. So that is another example of where empathy is needed, because if I treat you the way I want to be treated, then I'm thinking everybody wants to be treated this way. But you know what? Even if it doesn't land for me that X white belt wants to be treated in the way they want to be treated, that's what they want. So that's another sort of exercise that I can use or another muscle that I can strengthen to try to understand what other people want. And then to the extent it's appropriate, give them that. You know, I actually love that insight because that old adage of do unto others, you know, treat other people the way that you would want to be treated. It is noble, but it assumes that the other person is exactly like you. I mean, there's a lot of things that I know other people would want to do that I have no interest in doing. And if they treat me like they would treat themselves, that doesn't necessarily solve for the problem. I mean, it's appreciated, but it's not necessarily optimal. Um, God, I I can't believe I'm going to cite this, but professional wrestler Cody Rhodes once <laughs> talked about this and how he was talking to his wife who is of a different ethnicity than he is. And he, I guess, used to be of the mindset that, you know, you should try not to see race, right? You should try to just pretend it's not there and that mm. that's the way to fight racism. But something his wife said to him was, if you don't see race, then you don't see my experience, which Man. is completely true, right? I mean, you're, you are making assumptions about what someone else's experience and perspective is like through your own lens. And although that's noble and appreciated, a more powerful tool is to try to look at it from how they would interpret it and what they would want. And that's like second level empathy. Very hard to do, but incredibly important, I think. Mm, I agreed. And as you're talking, I'm thinking of the training that I got. Part of my alphabet soup is that I'm a health and wellness coach. So I have a couple of, you know, a couple of letters that I earned in becoming that. And one of the biggest tenets or tools that is used in coaching is empathy along with non-judgment. So I can empathetically show up for somebody and help them meet their goals, even if inside I'm going, why would you want to do that? Because it doesn't matter what I want to do. It matters what the other person wants to do. And so my ability to get on the same wavelength with someone who is telling me what they need, that is it's respectful and it's empowering. And and to the point you made about WWE wrestler, 
his, what was his first name? Cody Rhodes. Cody Rhodes, okay. Son of the legendary Dusty Rhodes. Don't get me started. I could go on about this for the whole episode. I've been watching, <laughs> I've been watching Dark Side of the Ring, so I'm learning slowly. Oh. Take it a while. But, you know, to that point, it sort of becomes, it becomes like a, a wedge for that second level empathy, right? Because now he can understand his wife's experience more and some of the things that he's likely to see are probably going to make him sad and upset. And maybe that is one of the, maybe that's sort of the hidden curriculum of developing empathy is that we're going to have to bump up against our own discomfort and our own fear. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, it is a lot harder to be judgmental of people and to lack empathy for people when you have people like that in your network. I mean, as an example, I I have a friend who transitioned genders many years ago. And after seeing what impact that had on their life and how the world treated them, it completely changed my perspective of what the trans experience must be like, right? And I, Mm -hmm. I like to think I've become much more empathetic about that. And I think this is important because we do live in a world now where at least if social media is any indication, it does feel like... Like people in general lack empathy. They're quick to judge. Mm-hmm. You know, ultimately, if you're on social media, you're playing into an algorithm that fuels controversy and outrage, right? So it's going to kind of prime for those things. And it, it is hard, I think, in this day and age to maintain your human empathy, especially given that so many of our interactions, like this one between us right now, it's, you know, it's through a screen. This is very different from going out to coffee with someone. What are your thoughts on this, Val? As someone who's been thinking about this for a while, how do do you retain your empathy in a day and age like today? Such a good question. I think there are, you know, all kinds of, to the point you made, there are all kinds of studies coming out about the detrimental effects of social media. And social media is a tool like jujitsu, right? It can be used for good. It can be used for bad, just like jujitsu can be. And from my perspective, the thing to do is to try to strike a healthy balance is to, as individuals, to be as humble as possible and open to learning. And also to recognize that over time, you know, our experiences change. So while you were talking, I was imagining what it would be like to get a bunch of, you know, old heads in a room and talk to them about empathy because, and this is a generalization, a stereotyping, and I know that's true, but I'm wondering about the relative emphasis that someone who is in their 20s, who is, you know, just killing it on the mat. How important is is it going to be for them to see what the experiences of other people compared to someone who is, you know, in their 50s, in their 60s, has been training for however long and can't do the things they used to do? So the point being, I guess, that, you know, maybe maybe there's something to be gained from looking at, I guess, the the maturity or the the age of someone's belt. Yeah in addition to the age of someone's someone's actual person. That is also a good point. You have kind of this jujitsu maturity, which can be very different from real life maturity. I mean, anyone who's grappled for a while knows this, right? We've all met those people who are, you know, they're 50, 60 years old. They're nice, gentle, kind of maybe nerdy, non-athletic people. But you put them on the mats and they just have a total freak out and they're trying to murder everyone because they don't know what they're doing. It's it's a different type of maturity. Mm-hmm. And I guess we all have different areas of life where maybe we are more mature than others. And a lot of that, I guess, just comes down to experience. Yes, for sure. And like I said, I don't mean to imply that 25-year-olds are not capable of empathy. Just simply that in the context of jujitsu, 
what is your role and what are your what are your goals at the moment? And so if you're an instructor, then it would behoove you to have a group of people who are who are happy to be at your gym and who want to come and who feel seen. And if you are a younger competitor, maybe you're not as interested in that at the moment, although maybe once you retire from competing, that's something you would want to do. And that's not to say that you can't have empathy as a competitor or as a young person, but maybe it manifests itself in different ways. So for example, I can see, you know, I can see that competitor just really being able to comfort a white belt who lost their first competition. Because if you compete at all, as you know, you're going to win some and you're going to lose some. Now that I'm just sort of thinking about this out loud, maybe maybe one of the ways forward is to think about where empathy is needed and in which kinds of contexts and then deploying the appropriate person or the you know the person who's at sort of the appropriate level or stage of their development in jujitsu to to provide it. Yeah, yeah, especially with white belts, sometimes that context is important. You know, white belts tend to take losses and performance in their first tournament really hard because they don't have the perspective that, look, this is a local regional tournament at the white belt level. Five years from now, no one's even going to remember this happened, right? But mm-hmm. when it's your first one, you don't have that perspective. And so it becomes very easy to to take those situations extremely seriously. I actually, I'm not a big fan of refing. I stopped doing it just because I really don't want to get into arguments with a bunch of white belts who take everything so seriously. <laughs> I remember the <laughs> The last time I refed is just everyone wants to argue and dispute points because, you know, they all want to win. Right. But look, it's if you're just doing this at a small local regional level, it's supposed to be fun. It's not a world championship at that point. Your career is not dependent on that win. And a lot of the time, those more junior people to them, they look at these things as a much bigger deal than they actually are. And I, I think that's a good example, maybe of where the gray hairs like ourselves can provide some guidance. For sure. And you're raising another point about sort of how sometimes it can be difficult to be empathetic, right? So if you're a ref and you're a black belt and there's a white belt contesting you, maybe part of you is saying, oh, you know what? I understand. They're frustrated. They worked really hard to come to this competition and they wanna, they wanted to do well. So that might be one part of you, but maybe the part of you that is kind of foregrounded at the moment is just, all right, Yes, I understand. Your match is over. I got to go ref another match. Get off my mat. <laughs> so, you know, again, the point being that sometimes, again, spe- you know, speaking for myself, I can have all of the the intention in the world to be empathetic. And sometimes I just don't, I can't access it in the moment. <laughs> Interesting, interesting. And I mean, that's always going to be the case, right? I, again, bringing this back to parenting, I have this with my kids sometimes where If all other things are considered, I would prefer to be empathetic. I would prefer to hear her out. I would prefer to take her opinion into account. But sometimes we just have to, you know, we got to get out of the house in five minutes and I don't have time to to mess around. We need you to put your shoes on and get out the door, right? And you need to kind of shelf that. And of course, you got to be careful playing that card because if you shut down someone else's feelings that can come back to bite you. But there are times when it is important and you have to say, look, I know you have a differing opinion on this, but I really need you to do this right now. That's always a difficult conversation to have. How do you, how do you manage that? I mean, especially as a gym owner or a coach, how do you handle that with the people underneath you? That's a really good question. One of the ways that I have handled it in the past, just in the teaching that I've done is I'll say to people, I really prefer not to pull rank. 
I really would love it if you didn't, if we weren't in a situation where I had to pull rank. So what I would like to see in this class is that everybody is respectful of each other. Everybody is seeing to each other's safety and everybody is doing as much as they can to kind of see outside of themselves so that it isn't just about you. And I know that different people and different belts are at different levels of ability to do that. And that's not to say that if people make a mistake or if someone hurts someone by accident, you know, kicks them in the leg or whatever, I don't get angry. But I do hope that people will see that, you know what, the reason you kicked that person in the leg is because you were going a million miles an hour. So maybe you can tone it down. So I try as much as possible to make it, a you know, a team effort or sort of like a group goal that everybody just polices themselves and everybody contributes to a positive and safe environment so that, you know, so that Cranky Val doesn't have to pull rank to make sure <laughs> that everybody stays safe. Cranky Val. I love it. Cranky Val. <laughs> well, let's talk then about coaches a little bit more because I know a lot of the people who listen to this are coaches or they aspire to be. How do you teach empathy to a coach? You know, we mentioned earlier that most coaches, when they get into this, their focus is on learning jujitsu techniques and teaching people jujitsu techniques. And I think there's a movement to go beyond that now and to talk about systems and to bring in sports psychology and uh, educational best practices, all of which is important. But the one thing that I still don't hear many people in jujitsu talk about is the human level and the connection level, how to build empathy and rapport with your students. That's just something that not only are coaches generally not taught, but a lot of coaches might be adverse to, because again, a lot of people look at this as some sort of like sport for tough folks. Um, and it it's hard to be vulnerable sometimes in a culture like that. So if you've got to teach someone as a coach, if you need to teach them how to be a better coach by being empathetic, any tips or tricks for how people can start to roll out that practice into their, into their coaching game, so to speak? Yeah. And again, I, I always try simply to speak for myself. One of the things that I have done in the past and you know, continue to do. So if let's pretend that I was trying to teach somebody to be a to be an empathetic jujitsu instructor. One of the first things that I would would share with them is that there are probably as many reasons for training as there are people on the mat. So not everybody is interested in training six days a week. Not everybody is interested in competing. And then there are some people who are interested in that. So just that level of awareness of, I guess, the platinum rule of, of what people are interested in doing and creating some sort of differentiation along those lines, I think is a good entry point into being empathetic. Because if you are not interested in training five days a week, well, then what does the weekend warrior need in order to continue to progress and in order to want to come back on a regular basis. Compared with or contrasted with what does the person who's got dreams of being the next world champion, we just had the Mundial this past weekend. So what does that person need? And so just simply understanding that different people are going to have different goals in jujitsu that leads to a discussion or at least an awareness of the fact that different people are going to have different needs. And that leads to this notion of the platinum rule. And then all of a sudden, you've got all kinds of empathy just running around the gym. I'm kidding. But <laughs> that, but 
I think just the awareness that people are different and that people's paths are going to be different. Some people are going to be okay with taking 14 or 15 years to get to black belt. They're taking the scenic route and that's perfectly okay. And if you can set aside your judgment, any judgment you have about that, like, no, you should get it in six years, then you could really be a source of support and a great resource for someone who is going to bring a different perspective simply because they're a different person with different goals. That's a great point and something that I'm really glad you touched on because from my experience, and I've played both of these roles, so I can say it for certain, the perspective of someone who trains pretty much every day is very different from the perspective of someone who does this once or twice you know, a week for fun. It's a very, mm-hmm. very different relationship you're going to have with the sport. And I think a bit of empathy is in order, both towards the coach and also towards the student in this respect. One thing that I think coaches often fail to understand, and again, for those who aren't on our premium service, we did an audio course with Kabir Bath, the head of international under Rafael Lovato Jr.'s association, and he talked about his coaching philosophy and brought up some great points on this. One of the things he mentioned is that most jujitsu instructors, they live and breathe, you know, their entire life on the mats, right? They're in their training multiple times a day because they have to run classes. So they're always there. And as a result, they often get bored of the stuff they're showing. You know, they're always trying to look for new, exciting things because they'll think, oh, well, I don't want to show this. I already showed this, you know, twice this week. Well, you got to remember that a lot of your students, probably the majority of them are not showing up to every single class, right? A lot of them are only showing up once or twice a, a week. So yeah, from the coach's perspective, you might be getting bored of the fact that you've already showed this thing five times, but for your, a lot of your students, they're only going to go to one of those classes. So it's something new and novel for them. And something Kabir said, which I thought was brilliant was as a coach, you're probably going to get bored of things much faster than your students will. And it's important for coaches to know that for a lot of these things, you got to draw them out, right? Make sure that everyone gets enough time to train these ideas. And that might mean teaching things longer than you want to, because you got people on different schedules there. It's a really good point. And it's funny because I definitely, one of the muscles that I need to strengthen is more positive self-talk as opposed to negative self-talk. And I do this to myself. I, you know, I'm teaching regularly now and I do this to myself all the time. Before I teach, I, I think to myself, what do I have to show? I showed, you know, I showed the same thing last week or whatever, you know, two days ago, like you were saying. And then I remember that even just the slightest shift in focus can be helpful. So maybe we're going to drill down on this one exchange that we only got a chance to gloss over the last time. And and that is really meaningful for people at multiple levels, right? Because if you are new, then you just need to get your reps in. If you're a little bit farther along, you want to see how the different pieces of a sequence fit together. And if you are someone who is being primed to teach or who is interested in teaching someday, then you can think to yourself about what language you might use, what words you might use to explain the same kinds of concepts to to somebody else. And along the lines of what you were saying about, you know, the fact that some people are only going to be there a couple days a week. Another thing that I think it's important for instructors to recognize is coming in once or twice a week isn't disrespectful. And I think it used to be seen that way. Like, you know, where have you been? But people have lives, people have different reasons and capacity for training. And so if you've got somebody who's coming in once or twice a week and you see them regularly once or twice a week, that's that's an amazing student. I mean, or that's an amazing thing to have because 
you're creating something that that student wants to be a part of, even though they can't be part of it seven days a week, like maybe some instructors are. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that a lot of instructors will say about this is everyone can make it to jujitsu frequently. If you're not making it to jujitsu often, that's because you're not prioritizing it properly, right? You hear this a lot where people will say, well, if you're not succeeding at X, Y, Z, that's just an excuse. And it's because you're not, you know, you're not taking it seriously enough. And my counter to that is like, who are you to tell me what my life priority should be, right? It's completely reasonable for someone to say, I go to jujitsu because it's fun and I like to do fun things and I can do it once a week on a weekend because the rest of the time I'm working and spending time with my kids and building a business and whatever, right? It, it's totally fine to say, this is not my life priority. But a lot of instructors kind of have trouble with that and they, I think, expect their, their students to treat jujitsu with the same seriousness that they do. But I mean, for a lot of us, you know, this isn't our job. A lot For a lot of people, jujitsu is an outlet. It's a hobby. And it's okay to have that kind of relationship with it where you say, I want to do this once a week, right? Not everything you do in life has to be done with the intent that I'm going to be the best in the world at this. Sometimes you do things because the practice itself has benefit regardless of the outcome. And I think this is something instructors often lose touch on is they they want their students to commit to this as if they are a pro, but the vast majority of people out there who train jujitsu will never be a pro and don't want to be anyway. Yeah. And that while you're talking, I was thinking this is another sort of entry point for empathy, right? If you're an instructor and your first thought is, why are they not only training two days a week as opposed to, you know, oh, I'm getting them in two days a week. Then maybe you can maybe you can think to yourself, what is it that's bringing this person back and how can I cultivate that? And what is it about their life that is that is enabling them to come just a couple days a week, but not not every day. And like you were saying, maybe it's going to be a revelation to some instructors that, oh, some people just do this for fun. But if you can be open to that and, you know, anytime you're curious about something or, you know, don't understand the the choices that somebody is making, instead of disparaging them or seeing them as wrong, a more empathetic route might be to just want to understand more. You know, tell me more about why you're only coming two days a week. Yeah. And that is also a great illustration of how to build rapport and connection with your customers, right? Mm -hmm. The best way to learn about someone is always just to ask. And I know it's hard for jujitsu people to talk about their feelings and to be vulnerable, but man, if you want to know what someone's motivations are, the best way to get that info is just to ask them, have an open conversation. And if you're concerned that people are going to be afraid to be vulnerable, again, like you said earlier, the best way to encourage vulnerability is to model it yourself. If you as a coach are vulnerable and humble and you admit the limitations of your knowledge and you're open about the things that don't work for you and the challenges you're having, you're going to see the same behavior most likely out of your students. I think the problem that a lot of instructors have is they're really afraid to show vulnerability. You can kind of see this when you look at people's social media, right? People are very, very mm-hmm. hesitant to show what the bad days look like. But unfortunately, if you don't model vulnerability, the people around you are less likely to to model it as well. So as an instructor, I think it's always a good idea to just admit when you don't know something, admit when you're not good at something, admit when something's frustrating you, you know, encourage that discussion so that your students know this is normal. They're, they're not a freak or they're not bad at this just because they're struggling. It happens to everyone, even the coach. Right. Absolutely. And and if that seems like a bridge too far, I'm a big, big fan of successive approximations. 
So maybe, maybe you're not going to say, you know what, I don't, I don't know how to bear a bolo. Like there, so there's a, you know how there used to be like a whole generation of jujitsu practitioners who didn't do leg locks, right? And there's a whole generation of practitioners who don't bear a bolo and things like that. So maybe you're not going to want to say, I don't know the first thing about the bear and bolo or, you know, when I came up, we didn't do leg locks. So maybe that's not where you're going to, where you're going to show your vulnerability first, but maybe you can practice by saying something that is a little less sort of difficult to admit, like, oh my gosh, you know, yeah, sometimes I feel really sore and, you know, don't feel like training or it took me however long. This is one that I share with people is, man, when I was first learning to run the pipe, I don't think I actually, even just in drilling, I don't think I actually took anybody down for a good month or two. So again, the point being, like, think about ways that you can show quote unquote chinks in your armor that don't feel like huge chinks, like just a little chink, just show a little chink. And then maybe that that helps model that kind of behavior for people until you get to the point where you really do feel comfortable being vulnerable. But it's it's a success of approximations and it's also a strengthening of a muscle. So if you extend that metaphor, there may be some soreness, meaning it may feel difficult at times. What about for the people who are here maybe part-time or they're earlier in the journey, or maybe they're just not as great at jujitsu as they want to be. Something that I observe in jujitsu is we've got this kind of funny thing where people who do this for fun will go in there and they'll roll with someone who does this professionally. And of course they'll get smashed, but then they'll really beat themselves up over it and they'll be miserable about it. And Although I guess that's understandable, right? When you go in and you do a competitive physical activity with someone and you lose, it's never going to feel good. It's easy to beat yourself up over it, but it's also completely reasonable and understandable that you had, you know, you didn't win. You shouldn't expect to. If you're a 50-year-old father of three who trains once a week and you do this for fun, you should not be surprised if some 20-year-old pro athlete is just kicking your ass every single time, even if you are technically more senior than them, right, belt-wise. It shouldn't be a surprise. But in jiu-jitsu, people, I think, do unfairly beat themselves up over this. They've got this expectation that if I'm losing, there must be something wrong with me. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? And how do we be more empathetic to those people, as well as teaching them to be more empathetic to themselves? Because I think that's a big part of it, is people, they kind of beat themselves up internally when it's not warranted. Right. Really good question and a question for the ages. So one of the things that that comes to mind for me is the fact that, you know, back in the day, there wasn't really a distinction between professional and amateur jujitsu people. Like you could, you could jump into the worlds without having prepped officially for it, you know, like not having done a training camp, just doing regular training. And sometimes you could do pretty well. I think those days are long gone precisely because there are training camps and there are, you know, professional white belts who are competing and training all the time. So that shift is happening, but it hasn't completely happened, which may be part of the reason that people are beating themselves up because there's still this sense that we're all kind of in it together. I think that's changing. And I think that there are, you know, some gyms where, and even, you know, with, with a competition class kind of idea. So that's, I think that's one of the dynamics at play that makes it difficult for, for people to, to give themselves a break. If they're, you know, a 40 year old blue belt who is getting schooled by a, you know, 20 year old white belt that can feel challenging sometimes. 
So maybe maybe part of helping that 40-year-old blue belt be a little bit kinder to himself is, first of all, sharing that history. And second of all, again, you know, modeling kindness and empathy to others. And then in those moments where you as a coach have the opportunity to have a private conversation with with someone who's in that boat, like, huh, I can't believe that I, you know, I'm so stupid or I suck at this or whatever, whatever, you know, maybe just saying, so how would you speak to somebody that you cared about who was in this same boat? And then kind of helping them see the contrast between the self-talk and the way they might try to support somebody else. Because we do tend to be our own worst and harshest critics. So I think, you know, just to kind of put it in a nutshell, there is that historic perspective of the fact that there is sort of a professional class of jujitsu people that's coming out. And the other part of it is helping people see the difference between how they speak to themselves and how they might speak to somebody else who is in the same boat. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting because from my experience, at least, it is always the the people who are the less experienced, casual part-timers who beat themselves up. It's never their training partners. I mean, when I roll with a pro athlete, I never hear them, you know, complaining about how, man, I hate rolling with these hobbyists or hobbyists suck or something like that. No, it's never that. I mean, these people are just happy to have partners to roll with. It is always people beating themselves up. It's completely an internal dialogue and it, it's not reflective of how other people look at you most of the time. It's just a, an internal reflection that you've created for yourself, which I think is honestly not that fair. I mean, as an example, right, if you hired an accountant because you don't know how to do your own bookkeeping, you wouldn't sit there and stare at the accountant and be like, man, I'm such a loser. This accountant is such a better accountant than me. You know, why can't I be as good as them? Well, look, it's because this is their job and it's not your job. It's really not that complicated. <laughs> you know, not, not everyone can be great at everything. And if you're doing this for fun, you shouldn't beat yourself up because you can't match the intensity or pace of the pro athletes. That's not a realistic expectation to put on yourself. It's fine to do this for fun and, you know, just manage your expectations accordingly, right? There's more to jujitsu than just winning all the time. Absolutely. And, you know, it does come back to this this idea that two things. It comes back to this idea that there is a professional, you know, their jujitsu is coming. You can compete at a professional level, right? Like there's now money to be won. And back in the day, there wasn't as much money to be won. So just by definition, there are people who are professionals. And when you're sort of alongside people who are are training professionally, it can feel like maybe you should be keeping up with them. It's sort of like that meme that goes around sometimes where, you know, basketball fans don't get to train with Michael Jordan, but the weekend warriors in jujitsu may have the opportunity to train with their their heroes. And so it is that sort of you're around that level of skill and that level of commitment. And so it's probably difficult not to get sucked into thinking, well, you know, if they're doing it that way, that's the way I should be doing it too, even though I can't. So it can, it can get a little complicated and a little, and a little stressful. And I'm realizing that, so there's this thing in education called the learning paradox. So how do you learn something? Because either you don't know it and you don't know that you don't know it, or you know that you need to know it, which means that you've basically learned it or you're on the way to learning it. So what I'm trying to get at is that moment of awareness where you start to peel back a layer and say, oh, I really need to be kinder to myself or, oh, 
this person is training two days a week and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. There's that moment in there. It's like this moment where the realization happens. And I think that's a difficult thing to bring people to, which is why modeling the behavior, facilitating conversations, facilitating opportunities for people to take a look at at their own behavior and how that behavior is or is not helping them meet their own goals is really, really important because maybe in that way we can try to start to create these these aha moments that can serve as an anchor for additional empathy, for additional self-awareness, for additional kindness to ourselves and to the people that we train with. Now, one other thing I want to pick your brain on, and this has been a hot topic, of course, over the last few years, is how we can kind of clean up and improve the sport. There have been a series of issues over the last few years, really since the pandemic, I guess, where kind of a lot of things have been blown open and exposed about the jiu-jitsu community. And I think everyone is becoming more aware that basically instructors behaving badly is a much more common problem than I think we would all want to see. And it seems like every week now there's some story about someone coming out and, you know, laying claims against an instructor for something that was done to them. And one thing that I do observe in this in these situations is that there's usually a pretty startling lack of empathy in those situations. I mean, these are very serious accusations to lay against people. And people, when they when they come out and make these accusations, it's for a good reason, right? But I often see when someone accuses their instructor of sexual abuse or harassment, for instance, out of the gate, there's going to be a whole army of people who start casting doubt on the victim and saying, well, how do we know she wasn't some crazy ex-girlfriend, right? Or a bunch of just unlikely stuff like that, which I find to be generally an an unempathetic response. And I think we see same things in just regards to, you know, the way that PEDs are tolerated in the sport, also the way that, you know, a lot of the way that people behave during the pandemic as well with COVID and such. Just a general, it feels like there's a general lack of of empathy here. And I, I can't rule out that maybe this is just me projecting my own belief structure onto the rest of the world, and maybe I'm in the wrong here, but do you feel like when these kinds of really bad things happen, do you feel that there's anything that our instructors could or should do to be more empathetic to the situation? Because it really does feel like in jujitsu, we're really not good at crisis response. And I think that maybe part of that is lack of empathy. Yeah, I think it's lack of empathy. I think there's also, so one of the things, one of my sort of pipe dreams or, you know, one of the things that I sort of play around with and chat with people about is how do we hold ourselves accountable as a sport, as a as a profession? So, you know, teachers, doctors, lawyers, they all have codes of conduct. They all have codes of ethics. And that certainly doesn't stop these kinds of behaviors, but at least in that case, there is sort of a, a standard that that we can try to adhere to. And so there isn't anything like that, to my knowledge, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So it's just a lot of people saying, well, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. And part of that is because it is such a, we were talking about this earlier, it is such a an individual sport in some ways. So, you know, I want to get mine, I want to get my training in, I want to do what I want to do. And we we don't have any real mechanisms to hold ourselves accountable as a sport as a profession a lot based on a shared set of values or understandings or expectations and i would argue that part of the reason that attorneys and doctors and teachers have codes of ethics is because codes of ethics and codes of conduct is because there's an understanding that we need to understand and 
appreciate and respect and protect the viewpoints and the experiences of other people. So empathy is sort of built into those kinds of of documents and and models. And like I said, we don't have anything like that in jujitsu, at least not to my knowledge. So it's easy for me to say, not easy, but I can say, you know, what that person did is wrong. And then in the absence of some sort of standard, that person can say, well, you know, it wasn't that bad because blah, 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 or, you know, that's just him or that's just her, whatever. And so we're all kind of trying to trying to be ethical people in the absence of a target. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. And I think probably the bias that we all fall victim to is it is easier to be empathetic to people you know who are close to you, which I think is kind of the root of a lot of these really poor responses that gyms have had when someone up there under their employee is accused of sexual harassment, right? It It is hard to hold one of your best friends accountable. <laughs> it's really hard to do that. When, when the accuser is some faceless person you barely know, and the person that, that is being accused is someone who is very close to you, you're going to have that implicit bias to be loyal to and to stand by your friend regardless of the situation and i fully understand that that bias right i mean i've been in that situation before where someone that i know it was revealed someone that i known for six years i never would have thought that they were up to up to anything problematic and we learned some terrible things about that person and i had to cut ties with them Mm -hmm. it's a very hard thing to do when you know someone closely and we are i guess hardwired to be empathetic more empathetic to people we know But I think whenever one of these situations arises, you do have to kind of take a step back and try to assess how you would feel from the other person's perspective. I mean, I see people all the time trying to cast doubt on the accusers when there's a a sexual harassment claim in jujitsu. And I've always thought to myself, would you be acting this way if that person who was laying down those accusations was your daughter or your sister Mm -hmm. or a friend of yours? I'm pretty sure the answer is no. I'm pretty sure you would not be publicly questioning their integrity and, you know, publicly attacking their claims. I think you would take it a lot more seriously if the accuser was someone that you knew. And so I think that in those situations, it is important to try to see things from both people's sides. That's That goes beyond just who's right or wrong, but just trying to understand what, you know, the perspective of which everyone is coming at this from, I, I think would probably result in better responses for gym owners than some of the more poor responses we've seen lately. It's you're raising a lot of really good points. And another thing that's coming to mind for me, too, is if you, you know, if you don't know this situation, empathy is invisible. Right. I've had this conversation with multiple gym owners, male gym owners who say, you know, I'm a good person. I'm working hard to be an ally. Like I want to be anti-sexist. I want to be anti-racist, anti-homophobic. I want to be anti all of those things. And that's the kind of gym I run. And I think to myself, and I've said this to them too. That's wonderful. You know that. You know who doesn't know that? Joe, you know, Joe White Belt or Jane White Belt who's coming in off the street. So I think that the people that you're describing who take these kinds of liberties and engage in these kinds of awful transgressions, I think they get a lot of airtime as well they should. They get a lot of attention. But what doesn't get as much attention, and maybe that's something that we as instructors and leaders in the sport can focus on more, is is advertising goodness, advertising that we are empathetic, advertising that we do care about, you know, the experience of other people. 
And I don't know if it's a statement. I don't know if it's a code of ethics. I don't know if it's a code of conduct. I don't know what it is exactly. But how can we as individuals and as gyms show the world that we're not like that? You know, the gyms that aren't like that, how do you how do you show them and actively indicate to people who might need to know it that you care about them and you care about what they think and you care about what they feel as opposed to coming in and, you know, it's their way or the highway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as always, Val, I absolutely love chatting with you. It's always a fantastic conversation. I guess something that I should ask here, because this is an area that you you really do work in and understand, are there any resources that you would recommend for people out there who want to learn or expand on empathy as a skill set? Um, you already talked about the platinum rule. I'll see if I can dig up a link to the book and put it in uh, the show notes here. But anything else that you would suggest that people go to and deploy if they want to expand and be better in this area? Yeah, I so I'm at the point in my education with coaching where that's my hammer and everything looks like a nail. But truly, one of the the main takeaways that I have from integrative wellness coaching or just, you know, professional coaching is the fact that we are educated, we're trained to be empathetic, we're trained to be present for people, we're trained to put their needs first and to empower them to do what's right for them. So I'm not saying everybody needs to become a coach, but if you go to the International Coaching Federation and or the National Board for Health and Wellness Coaching websites, there are lots of resources there on coaching and what it entails. And people who go there probably will see that there's there's a ton on empathy and on putting other people first and if anybody has any questions about that or, you know, about anything else, I'm always happy to, to chat about it. But like I said, coaching is my hammer these days, so everything looks like a nail. Well, hey, on that note, if people want to contact you, ask you questions or get coaching from you, how do they go about reaching out? Yeah, so I'm on Facebook, usually just posting pictures of my cat. And I'm on Instagram too. My Instagram handle is just my name backwards, Worthington Valerie. And if anybody wants to email me, I'm WorthingtonValerie500 at Gmail. 500? I didn't realize you were that old. Well, you know, I've been around a, I've been around a while. So 500 months? No. <laughs> so hold on. Does this mean that there were 499 other Valerie Worthingtons and you couldn't get any of those addresses? That's a really good question. And the answer is no. I just like I tried, you know, I tried a couple like WorthingtonValerie1, WorthingtonValerie2. And then eventually I just went, you know what? forget it. I'm just going to go with 500. But there aren't 500 Worthington Valerie's. And it turns out I was right. And now I wish I could change it, but I just have done so much email, you know, so much emailing with that email address that it's mine forever. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, as I always do, I'll put links to all of those resources in the show notes. So if anyone wants to check out those resources you mentioned, as well as your book, which I definitely suggest that people look into if they're considering making the leap into jujitsu as a full-time thing. I think your experience is very informative for a lot of people as to what that can look like. So great playbook there. If you want to, to benefit from Val's experience, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Also, all of your contact info, Val, I'll put there. And I'll also put a link to all of our stuff. 
everyone I'm sure knows, but if you go to bjjmentalmodels.com, that's where everything lives. Over 230 episodes of the podcast now, all timeless, all evergreen, all useful information. So that's all there for you, as well as our awesome newsletter, which is free. Definitely recommend you sign up to that if you haven't already. And of course, if you want to go deeper, that's where we recommend BJJ Mental Models Premium. You can sign up on the same site, bjjmentalmodels.com. The reason you'd want to do that is because first of all, you get access to the biggest audio course library for jujitsu that I'm aware of in the world. If you're like me and you prefer to learn concepts and strategies and ideas through this medium, it is the best resource to do it. You also get direct coaching from our awesome Black Belt Review Team. We just onboarded Josh McKinney, former BJJ Mental Models guest from a few weeks ago. So we've got some amazing coaches on there. If you want to supplement your your training, get some perspectives from literally world-class Black Belts on what your grappling looks like, sign up for premium, upload your videos, and we'll break it down for you. And of course, you also get access to our Discord community, which I really believe is one of the the best and most productive internet jiu-jitsu communities online. If you're looking for a place where you can meet people and network with people who will actually support you and help you be better as a grappler and as a coach, that's the place to go. So I definitely recommend that. There's a free trial, so please do check it out. Again, everything's at bjjmentalmodels.com, and I will put the link in the show notes. But Valerie, as always, thanks again for coming by. Always love these chats, and it was great to catch up as usual. You are welcome, and thanks to you, and best wishes. And I'm sure that your six-year-old is the boss, but I hope that she's got some empathy and lets you do some of what you want to do sometimes. (laughs) She's working on it. Take some time, I think. (laughs) But thanks a lot, as always. And thanks to the listeners, too. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time. See you soon. 